Hi there, I'm Dave Shulman, Chess President for 2022, and thanks again for joining us for another opportunity to have a conversation with Chess Leadership. Today we'll be getting into the publication space and I'll let my guests introduce themselves. I'm uh, Nikki Augustine. I'm the publisher for Chest, and I also oversee communications. Uh, communications at Chest includes a lot. It includes advocacy, membership, our marketing efforts, um, as well as our journal and research publishing. And I'm Peter Mazzone. I'm a pulmonologist at the Cleveland Clinic. My, my clinical and research focus is in the space of lung cancer. And here, the last three years, I've been the editor-in-chief of the journal Chest. So thanks uh, for joining us. I, I know both of you uh, were unsure exactly what we were going to cover today, so we'll cover a, a range of topics. Um, so first, let me start with Nikki. Uh, you'd mentioned that communications is a lot more than the journal, and while we'll spend the lion's share of today's conversation on the journal, talk a little bit more about how Chest communicates with its members, and, and you know what are your goals that what are your goals maybe that we're not quite achieving that you'd like to get further into. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to represent all that Chess does, right? So I, the, the biggest thing we do, our business, we think of internally a lot of the time as education, right? Um, and it's hard to represent everything that Chess does to all Chess members. So my goal for communication is really to get a better understanding of what do individual people care about and how do we not bother them with things they don't want to know about and how do we focus um, kind of the information that they need. And some of it, um, you know, especially as we've gotten back into advocacy, one of the things that's interesting is there's a difference between wanting to know, needing to know, and sharing opinions. Um, so I think at best, Chest is really a platform for discussion. So it's as much us communicating out as it is, like, how do we foster and surface the debate that's going on among our community? And part of that communication is communication back. So social media falls into your space. It as well. does. It does. What's the, in your vision, what's the right role for social media? How active should organizations be in communicating with their membership via social media? This is a really good question. Part of the balance we try to maintain is, you know, we don't want to just be a push of information. The idea of social is that there's interaction. So what can chess do to foster? that interaction among, you know, getting colleagues to connect with each other. We don't want it to be, you know, this is chest, this is from chest, this is from chest. We want it to be, you know, here's Dave Schulman and there's Peter Mazzone commenting on what Dave Schulman said. And that kind of energy, in my opinion, is what success looks like. When we talk about that in the context of the journal, sometimes it gets a little scarier, right? Because you have people sure. commenting on things and maybe, misinterpreting or maybe not qualified, but I, I still think that um, the debate function and how we foster that is really key. So let's let's spin over that. So, so Peter, first, again, thanks for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do at, in your home environment, and then your sort of climb up through chest leadership, if you would. Oh, sure. So uh, home, I've been at the Cleveland Clinic since my residency, so now since 1994. Uh, did fellowship training there and have been on staff since 2001. For about eight years there, I was the program director for our, our fellowship uh, and, and we started a second fellowship uh, during my time. Uh, but during that time, I was asked to focus a little bit more and more on thoracic oncology. Uh, so thoracic oncology has seen amazing growth in so many ways. So uh, we've had some exciting growth started lung cancer screening programs, lung nodule management programs. And now our, our 
our main hospital is not the Cleveland Clinic alone anymore. It's a health system that sees patients all across Northeast Ohio. So now it's broadening out the program to cover the entire health system so everyone gets great care. So uh, I'm fortunate to have lots of colleagues who are coming up in the leadership chain and I have an opportunity to, to really spread what we're doing there. Uh, my training at Cleveland Clinic allowed me to get connected with CHEST, really. In our first year of fellowship, we went to CHEST as our first meeting. So that was the first medical meeting that I really ever went to. In our third year, we got to go to both of the big meetings. And, and I had a program director and mentor, Alex Roliga, who was quite connected at CHEST. And he got me into the leadership program that preceded the main meeting even though most were supposed to be junior faculty. So that was an amazing experience for me. You got to, I still remember seeing some of the speakers on the stage, the, the doctor of Ronald Reagan and these things. It still sticks with me. So I had this connection and it seemed um, easy to connect. It seemed like a, a friendly place to be. We sat at round tables and leaders came by. Uh, though I was quiet as I still am, I, you know, I took in a lot. Um, from there, I had tremendous mentors at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, you know, I'm afraid to mention because I'm going to forget some of them. <laughs> Jamie Stoller, Tula Meta, you know, Alex when he was there, my, my chairman, Herb uh, Wiedemann, Janet Mauer, Sir Blurzman, and so on. Um, and they had connections uh, to CHEST. They uh, fostered my growth, but we were a fairly small group. So we didn't really have thoracic oncology mentorship. So we had a program where we could invite in some visiting speakers, and I got to invite in Jim Jett and Gerard Silvestri. People that you had met Trisha through Chest? You met, yeah. met through Chest, or after those, uh, those invitations to come to the Cleveland Clinic, they would get me on the podium at Chest. I remember Gerard had to cancel once last minute, and it was <laughs> in Utah, I think, and I wasn't planning to go, but I got to go because of that. And so uh, those connections really got me uh, connected to, to the society. Then um, I was doing some research on breath test development for lung cancer that uh, Gerard was excited about. So he invited me to speak at the network. That led to a position on the steering committee and then vice chair and chair of, of that network. And when he was president, he asked me to be the leader of the annual meeting. And then when that ended, it was right when Richard was rotating off and you know there was another challenge that i was excited about and, and got me to apply it's interesting to hear you talk about your path one of the things that i remember from the editor-in-chief search process was when we were talking to people about peter and trying to get a sense for who he is and how he worked I've never heard so many people try to claim themselves as somebody else's mentor in the process. Well, I was, I was, everyone's like, I was Yeah, I, was his, I, was, I yeah. was his mentor, but it's funny. It's a lot of the same names you mentioned, so I'm glad there's truth there. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's humbling, really. I yeah. was asked to speak at the clinic to our department about what led to this position, and it was a table of this mentor let me do this, or this gave me this opportunity. And, and really, you know, that, that's kind of humbling. Nothing happens full, without that guy. Full disclosure for the audience, which I probably should have. So there is a conflict of interest. So Peter mentioned that he was the program chair in the past. I was his vice chair at the time. Since I, yeah. uh, it was a, a pleasure of sort of watching you and your, and your co-chair uh, work in that role. Um, talk to me a little bit about 
your interest in publishing and why you threw your hat in the ring a few years ago uh, for the next editor-in-chief of the journal? Yeah, it's a great, a great question, and I'm not sure that the answer is a perfect one. No, I, I didn't ever have great plans or aspirations to, to serve in that role. And you wind through a career looking for great opportunities. You, you want to do things that keep you interested. You want to do things that have an impact, uh, both locally and broadly. And, and it just so happened that this opportunity came up when I was, I just had finished something fairly sizable. I just had finished being the program committee chair. Uh, I had lots of great things to do locally in my organization, but there wasn't a new leadership position opening. And, and so I started asking, and, and this just seemed like a, a wonderful way to make uh, an impact, more than just uh, the one-on-one -on -one impact that you like having with your mentees, but to really uh, be able to craft and share something that so many people can, can get impacted by. So I, I got excited about it, and, and I had to educate myself about what it means, and you know, what are some of the publishing issues that are current that I'm going to be facing. And, and that uh, that energized me a bit, and, uh, and so I applied. It's not a role for everyone. And I, I'm going to ask, and I want to ask each of you a question that's related. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about what what is your. It's probably not day to day because your job is probably varied enough that there are different days, do different things. But what are your overall duties as editor in chief? And then, Nikki, I'd like you to walk similarly around. You know, when a paper comes in, can you sort of talk a little bit about how it kind of navigates the process from initial submission all the sure. way through levels of review. So Peter, let's start with you. What is the editor job actually like? What are the duties yeah. that fall specifically to you and not the staff and associate and assistant editors who work underneath right. you? So, you know, when I entered it, I thought maybe it was going to be reviewing a whole lot of manuscripts and making actual edits to them and such. And I found that that's really not not the case. There just isn't time for that. We, we get now 3,500 submissions a year during COVID, 6,000 submissions a year. So they all come through me and then I filter them to the team. Our team's built with associate editors that lead each of the subspecialties, asthma, COPD, critical care. So I'll filter them to that group. If I can clearly see with a real quick glance that it's not a good fit for a journal, I might turn the article away, but otherwise I filter it down. They then own it. They either tell me with their expertise it shouldn't go on to review or they manage the review and, and get their decisions back to me. I'll take a look at manuscripts as they come back just to make sure there isn't something that's being missed in that decision. Then I share that decision with the authors. That's the handling of the original research and case reports and things that come in. I also make sure that each of the content areas are inviting good content in terms of review articles and things like that uh, for, for our readership. That's kind of day-to-day-ish stuff. Yeah. And then it's kind of big picture stuff. What's our vision? What are our goals? What projects do we put together to help us meet those goals? We, we've organized them under some pillars. We have three deputy editors, deputy editor of of uh, outreach to help us get the best articles, web and multimedia to help us share our work. And then what used to be contributor experience, we've now shaped into contributor equity and experience. And we have projects under each of those that I help to guide and lead or, 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 or think about or vet as they, they come in. And that takes up a substantial uh, amount of our time, the, the kind of um, 
project planning and how do we move this uh, forward to meet our vision. So we'll do a deeper dive on some of those visions and moving cool. forward. But so, so Peter suggested that he looks at every manuscript that's submitted. Is that correct? That is he, correct. He then said it was 3,500 a year. That is correct. That is correct. There's a, there's a tremendous amount <laughs> of volume. And in a lot of ways, when, when a manuscript comes in, we have we have several groups that work on the journal, right? When I started at Chest, we were self-published, meaning we did everything. Uh, we dealt with printers, we contracted out copy editing, we sold uh, advertising and fulfilled everything. That's not normal, right? In in most businesses, publishing is no different. There's been a lot of consolidation. So we work with a commercial publisher. We have an internal team and we have kind of Peter's editorial volunteer workforce. And so all of those groups um, kind of come in and out of the process throughout. So really the way we organize things with the commercial publisher, and this is part of maintaining our editorial independence, is the front end before acceptance is all on us, right? They may have things that support us. Uh, they may provide us like the manuscript submission system, for example, but they are hands off and we're pretty, I'm pretty strict about that, right? That's pretty important. So when the manuscript comes in, usually um, our staff are also looking at it. And we've gotten a lot looser in terms of, we used to have a checklist. Some of our team is over here now. Um, and that checklist used to be painfully long. We've whittled it down things like formatting. We're not gonna care so much how your references are formatted. Cause if something's accepted, that's gonna get right, sorted out on the back end. Um, so they'll look for things like, you know, are conflicts of interest disclosed? That's pretty important. Things like if it's a randomized control trial, did you register it? And is that registration number there? Um, we want to make sure that all the pieces that allow a reviewer to do their due diligence and to kind of make good decisions and see as much as they can up front are there. And um, so after the manuscript goes to Peter and he agrees it's something that should get some further scrutiny, it goes to the associate editors who select their reviewers, and then there's that cycle that Peter talked about. Um, once something is accepted, it now goes online three days from publication. And I say it, um, but what happens is that paper iterates with every version. So the first version we publish on the website is kind of the as accepted version. So it doesn't look typeset, it doesn't look like a chest article you're used to seeing. Um, but part of part of what's really important to authors is getting things in the literature as quickly as possible, right? And so that's the time at which you know there's no more embargo. Dialogue can essentially start about this research. Um, and then as our publisher now is doing their job of copy editing and working with the authors on corrections, we post each new version gets updated until the final, which appears in an issue. Um, the other thing we're working on after acceptance is all of the complementary content that we create to try to make it easier for our audience to understand. So we're planning podcasts. There might be editorials that are invited, um, creating things like visual abstracts and kind of getting all of that in motion um, so that when we're disseminating it, we have all the pieces in place. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you mentioned the importance of getting content out early. So I'm gonna throw up maybe a slightly controversial topic in this space, which is the, the topic of a, of a pre-print server. So this is something that I wasn't incredibly familiar with. Both of you were kind enough to educate me. So can you talk to our audience a little bit about what this is, why Chess does or doesn't do it, and, and 
whether what are the good and bad parts of something like this? Yeah, and it's confusing. We have a lot of confusing language. So when we post that first version of the article, it's often called publish ahead of print, right? When print was still the main thing journals did, that's when that term arised. That has changed dramatically. Most journals don't print anything anyway. Um, a preprint server is essentially you choosing to share your article with a community. So these preprint servers started um, kind of natively in the scientific community, really with mathematicians first. They said, um, you know, publishers introduce a lot to the process, but they take too much time. We're mathematicians, we could engineer something ourselves. And so they created a space where you could post articles publicly. Something you've submitted. So I, I'm writing this, I'm submitting it for publication, and I'm gonna post it. You intend to submit it for publication. Oh, you may not have even submitted it yet. Right, you okay. may not have submitted it yet. Um, so it can be at any stage, really. And that concept eventually made its way to medicine. Um, the medical community was probably the last group to embrace this because, as you can imagine, there's risk with these servers. And, and I should say they're no longer sort of self-run. Publishers have started them, right? The Lancet has a preprint server. Um, you get the literature out right away. But uh, what happens is it hasn't been vetted by anybody. Like whoever you as the author ask to review your work, sure, you may have gotten some feedback, but there's been no formal peer review. Um, and, and that idea of unbiased peer review, which is also, I don't know that it's, it's truly unbiased ever, um, but there's been no validation essentially. And what happens is uh, those are available to journalists. And so some things can get reported at that period of time. Because it's available for public consumption. It's available for public consumption. And especially in a situation like COVID, where, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was such a need for information. And even if you think about journalists being under so much pressure to be able to publish something that people can glom onto, that becomes really problematic. Even in the main literature though, one of the things I'll, I will say is, as much as the value that we add in peer review and copy editing and having so much scrutiny on every article, the article we publish still isn't necessarily ready to launch into right. practice, right? So now we have a much broader continuum than we did before preprint servers existed. Um, but that just introduces kind of a new phase of risk. So you've chosen, we, we at Chess don't use these pre, we, we choose, we want to wait until things are peer reviewed before putting them publicly out as a sort of, a, at least if not a Chess endorsed, at least a Chess published yeah, product. We, we respect the preprint servers and we've, we've looked at various ways to, uh, to either use or partner or, or be part of that, that movement. Um, so, you know, they, get stuff out right away uh, for a researcher in other fields who feels someone else might, you know, publish before them. They, they, they right. have first right, you know. Um, they, it's a community that then feeds back and helps them to improve their work and improve the research. So there's a lot of value to them. Where the downside is, is what Nikki's already described. If, if they're interpreted as being fully vetted, um, fully accepted work, um, and it makes it out to the mainstream media and to people in that, then it can get complicated or confusing. But for example, one of our outreach projects is we're going to look at some of, two of the biggest preprint servers, 
uh, filter publications in our space, pulmonary critical care, sleep medicine, and take a look. All right, do any of these look like they're really high quality uh, articles, research that we might want published in our journal and reach out to those authors? At one point, we explored should we have, like the Lancet does, a preprint option? You submit to us, it goes up in a preprint server right away. And so might our reviewer comments, even if the article's turned away. And we, we decided right now that's not where we, we wanted to put all of our energies. There, there are two other areas um, that I wanted to briefly get into. So one is you'd mentioned COVID. You'd mentioned that during the COVID, not that it's over, but certainly during the height of the, uh, the COVID pandemic, your, uh, the numbers you quoted were we'd gone from about 3,500 submissions to CHEST on an annual basis to about 6,000. Um, how does a how does a team as a publication <laughs> understanding that this is important stuff we need to get out there, but there's also important stuff that's still going on in the worlds of lung cancer and pulmonary hypertension and sleep medicine and asthma and all the other areas. How do you prioritize? I mean, maybe this is true even outside of COVID. How do you prioritize? Like all of this stuff is important. We only have a certain number of pages, even in the context of of electronic publishing. How do you prioritize what? What might be of good? What might have been good science two or three years ago? We would have published. We just don't have space for now. Yeah, we were fortunate in in a, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we're a team of largely volunteers, right? Associate editors, editorial board members, and so we went from pre-pandemic it was just over three thousand to six thousand submissions in twenty twenty, and we had to handle it. And I didn't ever get one complaint from a single team member that there's too many here. But then they were challenged with a terribly busy community of providers who also serve as our reviewers. And we're asking for more and more reviews, not just our journal too, coming from everywhere. So it become, became even a little more challenging to get timely reviews in for these. From day one, I remember we were at our journal strategy meeting, it was January of 2020. And uh, I'm speaking with my associate editor for chest infections at the time, Stefano. Uh, we strategized, what are we going to do if we start to see a lot of these? We invited an editorial from China uh, that was in the early days. And we said, we're not going to compromise on quality here. It has to be a question that's either novel or is going to add to something in the literature. And the methodology has to be sound. If that's the case, then how can we get it out quickly? So uh, with Elsevier, we made every one of those open access and they were online right away after acceptance. So we could have published a lot more COVID-related content. Uh, A lot of that was cited heavily, so that could have impacted some of our metrics. But we made a conscious decision to try to turn things around quickly, but uh, only accept at the same quality level we would have anything else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to one last topic, which is also related to this, which is the chest has chosen to open up the gates and, and open up two new journals. Can you speak again relatively briefly about sort of the identity of those journals, why you chose to do it, and what, what role does do these journals have in the context of the, I want to call it the parent journal? Yeah, so uh, it's exciting time to call it. Our, this is our chest, the society's portfolio of journals now. And so from an editorial side, we had to decide, does this make sense? There's lots of journals out there. Are we just muddying the water? Are we just adding? We're not going to have enough quality and things like that. So we really did study this. We said we had a less than 8% acceptance rate to our journal last year. But some of the articles that don't get accepted 
are pretty good. Really still, good, yeah. You know, and, and we want to share those with with our readers. Um, we check to see do they get published elsewhere, and a ton of them do in high quality journals. In many of them, in open access journals, so there's an openness to use use that that open access platform. So we did our homework to make sure that even if nobody submitted to those journals right away, we have enough content coming to the core journal to send to down lateral to those, it to lateral one of the to those journals. Got it. So we have chest pulmonary and chest critical care. Um, we're recruiting editor in chief right now and building editorial boards, and we'll have our first uh, issues in in January. We're really excited. Um, the visions are similar to that of the core journal. Um, but it, we've listed a bunch of areas in clinical research that may not get a lot of attention, implementation science, cost effectiveness, things of that nature, maybe non-pulmonary sleep medicine, things like that you'd be interested in. Doing. I'm interested but, in more than yeah. just, I'm just really interested in more than sleep. I'm like... <laughs> but we think there's a space that's not being filled by our journal where we could really uh, share some great content with, with our readers. It is an exciting time. Well, uh, so Peter, Nikki, thank you both for joining me today. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed a little bit of this peek behind the scenes of the publication world. I know you're both uh, incredibly uh, accomplished and I am always appreciative of the hard work that you do on behalf of Chess. So Nikki, Peter, thank you both very much. And we'll see you all next time.